Hi, I'm Georgia Graham, and I'm a writer, journalist, and retired model. This is Threads of Conversation, a show on Sometimes Radio where I talk to creative people about their life and career, as told by their clothes. In this episode, I'll be speaking to Margaret Zhang, whose incredible career journey began age 16 when she launched her blog Shine by Three. After quickly becoming a fashion fixture and a successful model in Australia, Margaret stepped behind the scenes, branching into photography, styling, consulting, and now film direction in cinema, relocating to New York and working across the globe for clients such as Chanel, Dior, Gucci, Louis Vuitton, Yeezy, and Uniqlo, garnering a following of over 1 million Instagram followers in the process, and completing a law degree. Having known Margaret since the early days of our fashion careers, we had a chat about Fashion Week, filmmaking, and so much more. This is Threads of Conversation. my radio show. Very excited to be on your radio show. So let's start at the beginning. So the first piece that you've chosen is a piece that reminds you of your childhood. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in West Ryde in Sydney, so out in the suburbs. And that area was very much a melting pot, as much as I hate that phrase. But um, it was very much an intersection of all these different immigrant groups, right? So it was Korean and Chinese and all different types of Chinese from different areas, Uh, Lebanese, Italian, Greek. It it was really this intersection of all these uh, different immigrant groups that made my upbringing very interesting in very unexpected ways. Um, My parents are the most wholesome most sweet um, Chinese parents one could ask for. Um, We're a very academic household, but a lot of opportunity uh, despite, you know, very humble conditions. And as all children of Chinese immigrants will tell you, (laughs) the fashion choices as selected by Mama Zhang were quite particular the reason why I chose this piece, this Helmstedt cloud coat, uh, can you describe because, the coat for us? Yeah, so it's this really great new upcoming brand, and the coat is almost three D. It's this it's fluffy coat, and it's uh, quilted in a way that the stitching goes around the clouds that are hand painted on this silk coat but it's technically kind of a puffer coat, but not a puffer jacket in the way that you would have the lines. So whereas on a a classic puffer jacket, you would have, um, you know, strips of puffiness or sometimes diamond quilting of puffiness. The puffiness in this coat comes from the cloud shapes. Mm -hmm. And it just reminded me of, I I kid you not, I did a piano with Stedford one time where I literally had like a full teddy bear head on the collar of my blouse like that that was just the design of the blouse it was like an entire fully formed head of a teddy bear that was just on my blouse and I think at the time I was just like oh you know this is something that my my mom thinks that I should wear for this Stanford and that's fine and I look at photos later I'm like this is ridiculous I had an actual stuffed animal on my blouse 
And it wasn't even like a jacket where there were, you know, embellishments. It was just like a gypsy blouse with a stuffed animal on it. And there was a lot of that ridiculousness, right? Like hand knitted things with excess pom-poms. I had like a chicken sweater that I was really fond of because my Zodiac sign is a rooster and it was just like semi 3D chicken sweater. It was a lot of 3D things happening. Wow. Um, in my Your mom's really wardrobe. into that sort of like soft surface sculptural. This could be a yeah, song. <laughs> very much so. It's like Moschino, but make it Chinese in 1995. So how did you develop your own sense of style? How did you escape this sort of sartorial Cerberus double-headed sort of teddy sweater and develop your own sense of style and really learn about fashion? Where did the interest in fashion come from? You know, as a theatre nerd and drama nerd in high school, uh, all the costuming around that and the production components of that was really interesting to me. And so I found it quite transformative. And that's how I found the fashion industry, to be honest. Like, I mean, you and I have talked a lot about the style.com heyday and Mm -hmm. going online to see those like honestly quite low resolution now in hindsight oh, yeah, I images. I, I used to watch those um they vogue used to these like tiny so grainy now I think back these little yeah. videos and it was almost like a cross between you know how in um history documentaries they're always sort of walking through ruins whilst talking about the sort of ancient family totally, or something totally. and he'd be like talking about this Dior collection then you'd have this sort of grainy image and I used to just pour over those little videos um, yeah and they'd have like you know, always in the review, it's like, and the press release on the seat said this, and, you know, this model said this, and this is the reference to the film, and think this. And I, I just, that's how I found it, because, you know, Victor and Rolf really early on did that great ballet collection. Mm. Um, and I think Jean-Paul Gaultier did a great ballet collection. So it was really through ballet that I found it was couture first. And then I was like, oh, there's a ready-to-wear thing for, like, supposedly clothes that normal people wear yeah exactly um, which, you're like you know, maybe obviously. i can afford some of this and you were like nope <laughs> yeah. still really expensive yeah just definitely still a student um so yeah i think that was really the avenue into it and i i do remember kind of doing a lot of online research you know when the fashion spot that forum was where everyone Dude, got, got their resources. This is, my claim to fame is there's like a little thread about me on the fashion spot. People being like, oh, Georgia yes. did this, this is and I'm I like, think oh, I remember looking at that after we met. I will say that I kind of ended up in fashion by accident, to be honest. Like, mm. I never really fully intended to be in fashion. It was never really a goal of mine. I was always a massive nerd and was very good at mathematics and studied music and chemistry and economics and and then for me, it was just quite a natural transition because I started a website when I was 16 during high school and it was this private world that I had in relation to an online discovery of fashion was scouted by IMG as a model, then kind of met you in that universe on a shoot in Sydney. I love how you and- say that as if I had some sort of formative effect on your career. You're like, and then I met you and obviously everything really you know, picked <laughs> up from there. I met Georgia Graham and she really... like. <laughs> no, but I met. Was that? I think I was in first year uni then, or maybe second year. But it was really early on. But at that stage when we met, it was really I was doing some of the modeling. I was mostly just focusing on studying, and then it kind of picked up as the internet grew and individual voices became a little more celebrated. But I remember in the beginning, you know, people were like, oh, you know, what's this digital thing? What's this Instagram thing? Mm. Um, and well, that kind of. Um, 
you know, bringing it back to your second item, which is the piece that represents your career. Can you tell us a bit about what you've chosen and why you've chosen it? Um, And also, yeah, how your career from going from being, well, self-confessed maths nerd um, (laughs) to starting Shine by Three and how your career in fashion started. Yeah, so the items that I've chosen two things. Well, it's like a multitude of things, but two kind of categories of things um, for pieces that represent my career. The first is a palace blazer. Palace is kind of a couture house that has more recently gone into ready to wear, Um, but they do incredible tailoring. And I have this black blazer from them, which is kind of the the Bowser of my black blazer collection. I think it's kind of the ultimate for me. Did you just make a Nintendo reference? Yeah, I did. Nice. (laughs) For anyone that hasn't played Nintendo, firstly, you should just go and play it. But secondly, Bowser is like this big... He's like... How would you describe Bowser? He's like the final frontier, like a big, spiky, scary boss man. The most evolved version of the Black Blazer that I've grown into. But I think because I started so young and, you know because I started modeling and then I was a photographer and continue to be a photographer. Um, And then as I finished my business degree, I started moving into consulting while I was doing all of the above. And something I really struggled with was the view of young women in a boardroom or a meeting environment. And you do get a lot of, Oh, well, okay. Why are you as this like child essentially um, telling me how to spend my money or telling what, me what to do with my business when you're every bit as qualified as someone who's potentially a little older than you you just happen to be in numbers a bit younger because you started earlier right mm-hmm. um and so I did find that having the blazer and doing the power suit thing helped and then Another thing or collection that I think really represents my career is I have this um, evolving collection of what I call shoot suits, but they're essentially a black onesie Mm. um, and they're all black and they're all, you know, tested for maximum mobility. I have to do like a lunge test when I get it. Um, I think I'm up to like six of them now. It's it's just my go-to thing, so I don't have to think about anything when I'm shooting this. And this is for when I'm behind camera. So if I'm, mm. uh, if I was just as a photographer or producing, or now more so in filmmaking, obviously it becomes more complicated with the bathroom situation. But that is a sacrifice <laughs> I'm willing to make. So is that thing you feel um, so you're like I've nailed it. This is such a utilitarian yeah. outfit, and all of a sudden you're like, I just need to go to Leo like sitting there the completely. <laughs> being like please don't let the lock break (laughs) I know truly truly and it's very exposing so can you talk a bit about um the development of your career so the stages you know you've done modeling you're a, a photographer you've moved into filmmaking you also I always like slipping in the ones that sort of people you know you have a law degree which is no mean feat um, you have a consultancy agency, Kung Fu. I like that one. Um, yeah, but can like you talk about these stages and also particularly with what we were discussing 
as regards the change in the fashion industry. So you really came to prominence around that time that street style was a really big thing. The shows were absolutely mm-hmm. the epicenter of fashion. Um, how did you get into that? And how did you kind of move through it to the other side where you are now, which is still having this interest and this prominence in fashion, but being much more interested in being on the directing, filmmaking, cinema side of things? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I feel like I'm very lucky that I started when I did because it's such a different landscape now with um, internet discovery. And I think there was a lot less uh, individual voice available at the time when, you know, I started my website on a blogspot.com. I think by the time I finished my business degree, I was consulting more. By the time I finished my law degree, I was working with Yeezy, which was a really interesting period of my career, um, and then spending a lot more time going back and forth between Sydney and the US. And I will say that the last year of my degree was really complicated and and really challenging as far as time management because I was working essentially a full-time load, um, not just on, you know, Yeezy, but also on shooting as a photographer, working as a model. Uh, I crammed my classes into Tuesdays to Thursdays I'd fly on Thursday night to you know Asia or the US and then fly back on on Tuesday morning and go straight to class from the airport it was pretty ridiculous and I wouldn't recommend it to anyone to be honest um and yeah then I after my last exam I moved straight to the US I went to New York I decided that was more of a practical decision for me because it was closer to Europe and I was also working a fair bit in Paris and Yeah, it was really continued to be a a fashion environment where, you know, editorial titles were the highest form of fashion-related art. Um, Video wasn't really a huge consideration yet with a lot of brands. I think brands were really discovering what that meant. And so that was a big advantage because there wasn't a lot in the marketplace. And because I was experimenting more and more with motion as a director, it gave me a lot more leeway in the same way that digital gave me a lot of room to experiment because brands were still figuring that out. I was very lucky that I had that kind of freedom where they're like, okay, well, here's the budgetary limitations and deliver an asset, I guess, question mark. And then I would just go away, do the thing, and then they would hopefully like it. Um, And I was lucky to be able to build my portfolio in that way. Um, And yeah, I think Fashion for me, because it was always a design and experience and emotional uh, allure, I suppose, and I was never really in it for all the other parts of the fashion industry, like the social components and, you know, the industry politics and all of that hierarchy. I was lucky in that a lot of that stuff didn't phase me early on, um, but my audience was growing and I was speaking directly to an audience who really had a two-way communication with me as opposed to me kind of prescribing to them, oh, this is what you should think, or this is kind of the one-dimensional, you know, this is how you should dress or whatever. It was kind of a bit of insight into everything, Um, which is why I kind of took a step back and was like, okay, I feel like I need to silo out what I'm really good at, what's the best use of my time in, you know, the front of camera component, the behind camera component, the consultancy component, Um, and I really do need to pursue what I really wanted to do, which was film. So simultaneously, I co-founded Background, which is my uh, 
cultural consultancy that I co-founded with Cypher, we, uh, who is from a, an ad agency background. Yeah, and then from a film standpoint, I think around the same time, I started kind of making some moves to transition into film. And initially, I think um, the play was, oh, you know, Margaret, you speak Mandarin. Margaret, you, you have acting experience. Um, Margaret, you're comfortable on a stage. You're, in, you're comfortable in front of a camera. Like, how about uh, going up for this movie role or auditioning for this xyz and and what i found you kind of sit on the outside and you assume that there are some issues with you know representation with um the way women are seen but then you get in there you're like oh there are some issues with representation Mm. and the way women are seen right and it, it doesn't become very real until you're amongst it and it's quite difficult to process because especially as young women it's very hard to um break out of the conditioning that we have from media or, or structures of authority to stand up for yourself and call a spade a spade. And I still struggle with that in film in particular because I think in fashion I've gotten to a certain point where if something comes up that I'm not comfortable with, I will say so. But I think in film, because relatively to a lot of people in the film industry, it's relatively new, um, I have found myself in positions where I'm like, is this a battle I'm going to pick right now? I don't think so, but I'll, I'll, I won't forget about it. And so then I started writing my own um, feature script, which I, I have been you know, working on for the past year and a half, I suppose. Um, so yeah, that's, that brings us to today, I think. <laughs> so kind of rewinding back um, to a recent project that uh, is represented by your next item, which is yeah. the the face apartment jacket. Can you talk a bit about that project and why you've chosen that piece? Yeah, so I joined the face as a creative director at large for the Asia market um, around the time of their relaunch last March. So they wanted to have this, I guess, education moment because it was a, a British magazine. So we concepted this apartment which I art directed called which we called the face apartment and it was kind of like okay if a face were a person living in New York City where would they live and what would it look like so it was just kind of this seedy um Debbie Harry-esque uh 80s a little mismatch like a very on acid apartment um Mm -hmm. we dressed this space above this great gym called overthrow which has a long history of kind of counterculture um and and protest organization and the building's been there for a long time you know basquiat used to hang out there my dream scenario was to have this program space for a month where there was always something going on there was always you know a secret gig in the basement or you know a boxing class or Uh, exhibition kind of in the artist studio and we had a few artists in in residence there doing interesting installations um and then everything was shoppable right I wanted people to be able to come in and take a piece of the furniture buy a piece of the furniture buy a snack from the fridge you know buy a book off the shelf buy the underwear in the drawer buy the clothes in the wardrobe and so the piece that I chose for your question of you know what is one piece that made you feel like you were a part of something it was this bomber jacket that we did in partnership with alpha industries um and we had heat printed on the front and back the face apartment and the dates and the address which was nine bleaker 
And yeah, it was it was really special. It was a really tough production, um, mm. but on the most part, it was really worthwhile. Yeah, I remember seeing this sort of, I feel like I saw on your social media, the lead up and then the launch of that. And it's yeah. always that funny thing where you 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 know someone personally kind of beneath the social media and I was like I'm getting the vibe that this is an incredibly rewarding project that also but also that some real shit went down behind the scenes oh my god I felt like it was like someone who'd given birth you know and you see it's like oh I'm pregnant oh I'm bigger now oh my god my ankles are so swollen oh just get this baby out and then they're like oh I'm so tired my labor was 27 hours (laughs) we love the baby but oh my god (laughs) yeah it definitely was was one of the situations and something where we had such immediate gratification from people who came but I will say that the the benefits from that activation some of them haven't even materialized until even in the past month right Mm. like the the profile of people who came through that I didn't know had come through had only kind of come out of the shadows in the in the past months literally where there's you know some very high level people were like oh you were the one who worked on that and I think that's actually a really good kind of life lesson slash career lesson of there is still value in a long game and yes it's an investment and when you go at something with a mission and a degree of authenticity it's not just doing something for the sake of Mm. doing something Mm. I think there's a lot of value in that and you will kind of reap some rewards from it long term. That aren't immediately obvious. But that brings us quite well onto your next piece. So we've talked about yes. working hard and now we're going to talk about letting loose. So the piece that reminds you of a great party. Um, so I I have these Chanel glitter boots that are so interesting because that shape is such an icon of the house of Chanel right, that square toe with the cap and that kind of mid-calf length and that low square heel is -hmm. such a classic of that house and I'm such a fan of what Chanel as a house stands for from a design sensibility but also as, you know, a female-founded, female uh, liberation of women in the way that they dress, right, what Gabrielle Chanel did for women's dressing, um, kind of pulling people out of corsets and stuff was is always something that I've really appreciated. And so these glitter boots are just so much fun. <laughs> they're just space boots and they're literally covered in glitter. And every time I pack them in my suitcase, there's just like a few little specks of glitter that, you know, mm. find their way into the rest of my stuff. And it's so happy. Um, I, I don't drink at all. And so for me to be able to, as an introvert, be at an event where there's a lot of other people and a lot of loud music the music is very important to me, but kind of for me to feel like I have my own version of fun and I can still have fun without all the people around me who are not always A-plus humans, um, <laughs> I think that's really important. And I'm definitely, I'm definitely, definitely a shoe person and not so much a bag person. I mean, you know, I appreciate a leather good situation, but um, I'm more ha- than happy to just exist with my phone and my subway card and... <laughs> You know, I was going to say, really you never shoes. really, you never really carry a bag. That's not a very Margaret no. Zhang. Two things: she's you're so polished and so glam all the time, but I noticed that so you never, um, uh, you never, yeah, babe, you're so glam. Oh my God, this is turning into one of those sycophantic fashion podcasts. Where they're like, <laughs> no, you're more stylish, um, but you don't do manicures and you rarely have a handbag, which I always think I love those little Margaret Zhang touches sort of. 
She's got her stuff in her pockets and she's got hands that are ready to work. Always in my pockets. That's why I need the, the boiler suit with the pockets. Like everything needs to have pockets. Okay, so moving on to your next item. So this is the piece mm-hmm. that reminds you of a high. And this is your Louis Vuitton full winter 1011 corset. So can you tell us about this piece? Yes. So I remember seeing this collection and, and Sarah Moa's review about the collection at the time. This is when Marc Jacobs was at Louis Vuitton. Mm. I thought it was such an interesting review because I, I suppose at the time this kind of um, woman, like a, a a curvy, you know. Well, this was the show where they got all the um, they got all the Victoria's Secret models, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like Bar Raffaelli, It was Adriana Lima, and it was like Letitia Castor, who's like one of the most beautiful women to have ever existed. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are like women, like they're like capital W women, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this like God created woman kind of Brigitte Bardot situation. And I remember Sarah Moa's review at the time when I read it. It was just like a little bit. Um, it was like, oh, this like woman thing as a novelty and you know, dirndl skirts and all the shape was the same. And, but I just remember when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, this shape. And so I obviously as a student at the time, I just, what I was first year university, there's no way that I could afford that. And I think I, I looked for this corset for so long, just on, I had Google alerts on it. I had, uh, um, you know, alerts on all of the kind of secondhand or vintage websites um, and I finally found it on Vestia. But I like the fact as well, you did a post recently that was the outfits that you've been wearing in lockdown and the, the corset made it in, even amongst the sort of more comfy leisure yes, wear pajamas. gear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like just pop a Louis Vuitton corset over it. That's a good one. Well, let's go for that more empowered moment to a slightly, the next piece is the piece that reminds you of a low. So can you tell us about what you've chosen for this category? Okay, so for this category, I've chosen that black ribbon choker thing that I wore for, what do you reckon, two years? You did wear it for a long time. I was was like, surely that whole period can't have been a low. When I saw this on your email when you wrote me, I was like, oh no, I hope you weren't miserable for that long. (laughs) Well, no, you know what? It was really that time where I just moved to the, or I was in the process of moving to the US and there was so much up in the air And it wasn't that I wasn't happy, but I was, like I said, I was frustrated and I was not clear on my direction, but feeling like I had to keep up optics of being good, right? Like Mm. feeling like not just from an audience perspective, but like for my parents and my friends, like people who were worried about me kind of doing this big move by myself um, to kind of prove to my agents that I was bankable for right for one of a better word and it was mm. this period of time where I invested a lot of time in networking at the expense of my own health not in any serious way but just like mental health and those things just just chip at you that wear on mm. you over a, a one to two year period um and I was flying just constantly long haul flights every week and it's just not good for you um so I, I don't know, not that the black ribbon choker had anything to do with it, but it's just what I happened to wear at that time. And I remember when I decided to stop wearing it, I was like, oh, I hate this thing. Why do I still wear this? I was going to say, I actually remember a really distinctly um, an outfit that you wore that with. It was the 
black choker and then it was a blazer and then underneath it was that Alexander McQueen lacy um it was kind of like a oh my god yeah it was like and that I was remember like a good was, leather bra with the lace thing yeah exactly and I remember you saying oh yeah people don't ever expect me to sort of dress sexy and people are a bit you know I think you mentioned your parents are a bit like oh what is that item because they're like oh my god I can see her midriff I can see her ankles but I've always been more covered up than most I would say Mm. which is interesting that we then come to the next piece which is the piece that made you feel that makes you feel sexy so um I'd love to hear what you've chosen for this one yeah, so for the record, I am not a sexy person at all. Like, I'm extremely nerdy. I didn't realize until I moved to America that I'm actually a giant square. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I got to America and I was single at the time and I was like, what is happening? Like, it was just very stressful to see, um, especially in New York dating culture. It was just very, very intense for me. Um, but I think that there is a false association between uh something being revealing and something being sexy and I do think Mm. that the back is such a beautiful um beautiful seductive part of the body Mm. and so I love this preen dress that is actually another one of the pieces that I looked for for a very long time because they've done various iterations of this kind of high-necked uh ruffle up the side and ruffled sleeve and kind of larger volume sleeve dress. It has this back cutout that isn't even actually that low, but just the fact that everything is completely covered and it fits on the body so well, but it's not tight. It's kind of flows. And then you have Mm. this back opening. I just think it's, it's not, you know, in your face and it's not, um, I don't know, as exhibitionist, I suppose. I don't know if that's the right way to describe it. Well, I was going <laughs> to say, I think it's interesting that you say that you don't feel like you're a sexy person because you are um, a very beautiful and quite a powerful woman and you're very assertive, you're very independent and you really know yourself, which I think is a very, it's, you know, that's a very sexy quality. And I wonder whether, you know, particularly when you moved to New York, whether you sort of became more aware of that and how that translated Um, well I think that's a really interesting question because I think layered into that was my realization of how different groups particularly of men see Asian women Mm -hmm. because there's definitely a narrative an orientalism that is you know throughout all of colonial history ever um around uh how an asian woman should be i i never really realized that there are different groups of men whether or not it's by age and generation or by um cultural group that have different views on how an asian woman should be and and there's obviously like a submissive kind of sexual thing that comes into that or they are attracted to the idea of you and it's quite frustrating and it still exists obviously um and a conversation that I have a lot with a lot of mixed race friends for example where you know we are a generation of children of immigrants obviously both of my parents are Chinese but for a lot of my parents uh friends or some of my friends who you know they're children of uh Asian mother and uh Caucasian or other race uh, father 
having that conversation and kind of breaking down, okay, where does colonialism seep into our everyday social interactions mm. and romantic interactions? And, I mean, even when you look at fashion, you know, what, the way that Asian culture is represented or appropriated um, very recently as well, you know, it's not like this stopped happening in the 90s, right? It mm. continues to happen. Um, it's a complicated relationship with that because it's this glorification of this kind of seductive Asian woman and, you know, you and I have both talked about all of the editorials and the collections and, and what is offensive and what isn't offensive and it's such a fine line. Mm. So, yeah, it's it's a tricky one. More than ever, brands and, and even consumers need to understand that there are, I mean, I, I speak to Asia in particular just because that's my experience and that's my lived experience, but Asia is not like, a giant section of the world that is one big piece mm. of homogenous humans, right? Mm. It's thousands of cultures, even within one country. You know, China is obviously a target market for a lot of brands. It's, it's not the same consumer all the way through. Mm. And the same, and, and different groups of people, particularly with immigration, have very different views on what is offensive and what is not offensive. And mm. There needs to be sensitivity to that. So I think we've only got one item left, and this mm-hmm. is your one that got away. <laughs> so for this, you've put this. Uh, I don't know if any of you listeners out there will have heard of this super oak um high fashion brand. <laughs> Patagonia, or Patagonia, which is a brand I absolutely love, but um, let's be honest, when you think of Margaret Zhang, you don't immediately think of Patagonia. Um, <laughs> you put Patagonia raincoat. And then more interesting, there's a little subtext, it's lost somewhere between Nicaragua and Costa Rica in 2006 or seven. So please tell me why, how you came to wearing a Patagonia raincoat and how you came to lose it in 2006, somewhere between Nicaragua and Costa Rica. Just for context, I... I don't know why my parents let me do this, but I went on this uh, school trip in two, in December of 2006, kind of bleeding into 2007. It was month long. I think I was four, 15, 14. I can't remember. I can't do the maths right now. It was one of those, I think it was like a world expedition. It's similar to like a Duke of Edinburgh type thing mm. where – uh, you you go, it's like a four-week program, you do a week of acclimatization, you do a week of, you no, know, two weeks of like pretty intensive hiking, like outdoor mm. stuff. Um, it's usually quite, you know, physically strenuous. And then you do a week of community st- service. So, you know, we did um, like building seawalls with a school in Costa Rica and like taught them English obviously because of all the intensive hiking that we were going to have to do. I'm not joking. We did the Corcovado National Park Trail, which for any of your listeners who are backpackers or hikers, that's a very difficult trail. We turned up at base camp and there were just like 25, you know, 30-year-old backpackers who just chased somewhere around the world and they were like, what is happening? Why have these children <laughs> turned up at this base camp? Um, and so obviously in order to prepare for this, the the wardrobe for it, which is weirdly kind of come round, is quite um, what what do they call it now? Nature core, you know, organic zip lab, and you know everyone's wearing a Patagonia shearling now, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. 
Um, so I had to gear up on the the bucket hats, the quick dry kind of sweat wicking materials, <laughs> um, the the hiking boots, and I had this really great Patagonia raincoat that was purple, and it was that really you know that distinctive purple that's like almost magenta but not quite pink enough. It's yeah, like a really exactly. warm purple. Yeah, I love that raincoat. And Patagonia, look, I'm a big fan of Patagonia as a company. I think what they stand for and what they practice in upholding what they stand for is unrivaled. And yeah, I, I mean, for any of your listeners who haven't read Yvonne Schoenart, the one of the founders of Patagonia, um, his book, Let My People Go Surfing, unbelievable book. Yeah, I think Patagonia is the most incredible. And I, it constantly kind of it blows my mind that I'm like, how, why are they the only brand that seem to be able to do this? Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. It's just, why can we not translate this into a high fashion, more ready to wear context? Why does it have to just be limited to this, you know, the outdoorsy performance wear? Anyway, Absolutely. that's another, that's another, no, I mean, that's like a whole, <laughs> that's a whole radio show. But yeah, I had this raincoat, you know, obviously me being Naughty Margaret had the raincoat in a plastic bag so that, you know, if it were to rain and I were to wear this raincoat and I got wet, I wouldn't make everything else in my bag wet. And This is probably why we you don't carry constantly... a handbag. <laughs> you have residual trauma from, from this backpack. And we were just constantly packing and repacking our bags because maybe it was a sunny day, it was a rainy day, whatever, right? So it was like constantly packing and repacking. I remember getting to Costa Rica and like unpacking my bag again. I was like, oh my God, where's my raincoat? I, that's my conclusion. It's possible that I left it on the bus or whatever, but it was never to be seen again. Now I have one final question for you before mm-hmm. we wrap up, which is, what did a soy chai latte ever do to you? <laughs> oh my God. So I remember when I... <laughs> to fill in uh, any listeners on what this means. So Margaret, for a long time, what was your bio on Instagram? It said something, it was... It's something, something, and then soy chai latte, because you don't drink coffee, but you would always drink a soy chai latte, which, you know, in Australia particularly, everyone loves um, chai lattes. And I remember one day, this makes it sound like I troll your profile for updates, like every single day, I'm like, what's Margaret doing today? But I remember I went on and I was like, soy chai latte got cut. (laughs) And I sent you a message being like, what did soy chai latte ever do to you? Um, Obviously, there are great soy chai lattes still in existence and I still you know for nostalgia's sake get it once in a while although although now I kind of I don't think I've interacted with a restaurant since February I've I've literally just been making everything myself (laughs) which I've always done but yeah now I have my own kind of chai mix at home but I'm more on the matcha situation now Mm. I know. I mean, there's another topic of conversation is your, I I wanted to ask you about all of your cooking. I really liked seeing, I mean, partly because I think I'm the only person in the world that managed to get worse at cooking during lockdown. (laughs) Just like, (laughs) just eating straight from the can instead of pouring the can into a bowl. Yes. It's deconstructed. Yeah, that's we're going to call it brutalist. Yeah, postmodern. Yeah, it's all very brutalism. It's a part of a conceptual narrative. When is fashion going to have a brutalism, you know, upswing? I feel like I we're getting there. We are getting We've there. We've all been tortured enough that we're, we're like, I think we need to have an anti-maximalism moment. Mm. And what about you, future? Can you give us future plans in a nutshell? Future plans in a nutshell. I am 
very focused on the handful of feature films I'm working on putting together. So it's really nice to be able to focus, um, but also draw in a lot of the things that I've learned via having had and continue to have a fashion career um, and build on those experiences as opposed to kind of closing out that chapter and starting a new one, I guess. But yeah, the focus is is film, like directing, writing, a bit of acting. But again, that's a interesting other, you know, representation conversation and storytelling conversation for another radio show. Another radio <laughs> show. I know I could just talk to you for hours, but we should probably wrap it up. But thank you so much for talking us through your threads of conversation. Um, My pleasure. It's so fascinating to hear about all of your work and um, what I personally look forward to when we can actually see each other in the flesh again. I know, Hopefully sometime soon. It's been so long. It has been so long. But meanwhile, I would encourage all the listeners to go and check out Margaret's amazing work, both in film, fashion, writing, cooking, whatever, basically whatever you like, Margaret has something for you. <laughs>